Well, that eight minutes went by fast, didn't it? Well, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving, too. I hope uh, you had a wonderful holiday celebration. I know we had our, our kids, all of our kids here and our two grandchildren in town, and it was delightful. And, um, you know, conversation around the Thanksgiving table is always interesting with family, isn't it? Kind of at our table, it could range from airplanes to technology to theology and just kind of all around. Um, If you want to really generate conversation, maybe you could float this question. Who are some of your role models? Who are some people that you look up to? And then around a typical Thanksgiving table, I'll bet those answers would be all over the board. Might even be scary, some of them. I, uh, so I was thinking about that a bit this week, and a role model is somebody that really sets an example for us that we would want to emulate. And I thought, well, who are, who are some of our culture's role models? So I turned to the source of all worldly wisdom, Google, <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff out there. There were all kinds of lists of role models. There were executive role models, celebrity role models, athletic role models. There were cartoon role models. Did you know there's cartoon role models out there? I mean, one of them was Remy the mouse from Ratatouille, or was it a rat, a mouse? One of them was Dory a fish, another was Anna from Frozen. These are like cartoon role models. There's even politician role models. That, that blew me away. I guess it goes to show that nobody's completely useless. You can, you can always serve as a bad example, right? So there's all of these role models. Well, last week we began a new series in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, our series titled Dear Church. And what we saw there was a model church. It was a group of believers in Thessalonica where Paul, the Apostle Paul, had preached the gospel on his second missionary journey. And, and what's remarkable is that despite severe suffering, the church actually grew stronger in their faith. And Paul wrote this, he said, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. And so they were a model church. They were model believers, examples that we should strive to emulate. And now this morning as we move into chapter 2, what we're going to see is another model. It's a model for ministry. And how Paul approached that. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 16. And I got three parts to the outline. Pure motives first of all. Proper methods. And finally, that's actually wrong. I changed that. It's powerful means. Not ministry, but powerful means. In verses 13 through 16. So the text is a little longer this week. And I decided just this morning that I would not read through the whole thing up front. I hope that each week maybe you just read a little bit ahead. So that you kind of get a sense of, of where we're going and can be meditating on that. But we'll take it just a little bit at a time as we work our way through the passage. So starting in verse 1. 
Paul writes, You know, brothers, that our visit to you is not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Well, the first thing that I want us to see in this passage is, first of all, the pure motives in these first six verses. And in the first probably 12 verses of chapter 2, Paul writes about his experience in Philippi. And then he talks about both his motives and his method of ministry. But he, he tells them what happened to him before he arrived in Thessalonica. He said in verse 2, We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi. And I think that that's a bit of an understatement, really. Because if you go back into Acts chapter 16 and read about what happened in Philippi, you'll find it. They didn't just suffer. They were severely flogged. That's the same kind of treatment that they gave Jesus. The kind of treatment that often resulted in death even in and of itself, just from the flogging. So they were severely flogged. And it says they were insulted. The ESV says shamefully treated. This would be referred to being stripped publicly before being flogged. And all of this happened without a trial. And then afterwards, they threw them in prison with no medical treatment. They fastened their legs in the stocks. They were in an inner room of the prison. No windows. It was the most secure location because these men were seen as a threat. And so all of this happened in Philippi just a day or two before they arrived in Thessalonica. So let me just go back to our map for a moment. This, this all happened on Paul's second missionary journey. He left from Antioch with Silas and they headed up to Lystra and Derby, where he meets Timothy. And then Timothy joins him and the three of them head on over to Troas and across the water to Philippi. And it's there that they were beaten and imprisoned. And then they head over to Thessalonica. Now, I like, the, I like to see as much as I can some of these locations in the archaeology. This is part of the ruins of Philippi. And in particular, it's showing the forum. I've outlined it there. The forum was like the plaza in the middle of town that was the center for public life. It would be surrounded by markets and businesses and government offices. And in the front, you can see the root of the Via Ignacia, which we talked about last week. And so this is where Paul and Silas were dragged when it says they were dragged into the marketplace by the people and then before the magistrates. And those magistrates would have been maybe in one of three places within this forum. They could have been at what's called the Bema, which is an elevated speaker platform. They often would hear uh, cases there, almost like a courtroom. They could have been at the Roman Basilica, 
which is kind of like a courthouse, or a third place. This was a term I'd never heard of, the bulletarian. Have you heard of a bulletarian? It's like a council house. To us, it would be like the House of Representatives. It's the representatives of the people. And they may have drugged them to that place, and that's one of these three places is, is certainly where they were when they were ordered by the magistrates that they should be stripped and beaten publicly. And then one more thing, down in the lower right, you can see what is held as the traditional prison of the Apostle Paul. And so all of this is in Philippi. Let me show you some close-ups of each of this. This is the Bema, or the elevated platform. You can still see much of it is preserved. This would be the basilica, or the courthouse, where they might have appeared. And then a third possibility, they could have been taken before the magistrates in this bulletarian or council house. And one of those three, almost certainly. And then, of course, they were thrown in prison. And here is what is tradition holds to be the prison of the Apostle Paul. Now, he didn't engrave his initials in it or anything, so we can't say for sure this is where he was. But for centuries, even almost some, a couple millennia, people have held that this was the place where he was in prison. And so you probably know the story of how God miraculously delivered them from that prison and used that as an occasion to share the gospel with the jailer and his family, and they all came to faith. And after this, the magistrates find out he's a Roman citizen, and they start um, apologizing and said, you can go. And he said, Paul said, no, 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 you can escort us out. You treated us improperly, and you can escort us. So they went to the house of Lydia, and then they headed out toward Thessalonica. Now, this is a piece of that Via Ignacia between uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. And this is the exact road that Paul and Silas and Timothy would have walked on. And I just think it would be so cool to go there and walk the very road that those guys walked on, stepping on the same stone, seeing the same view of the countryside as you travel from from Philippi to Thessalonica. Of course, we wouldn't be under the same burden that they were, but this is, this is where all of these events happen. And so just imagine for a moment that you're the Apostle Paul, and you've been traveling probably over a thousand miles, and God, you believe, has led you to this place of Philippi, and you get there, and maybe you had imagined that the whole city is going to come to faith in Christ. And so you preach your heart out, and you share the gospel, and some people respond, but a lot of them don't. In fact, many of them form a mob and a riot, and they drag you into the, the courtyard, and then they put you before the magistrates, and you're beaten, and you're thrown in prison, and... It just probably didn't work out the way he had imagined it. And then they, you leave town, and so you go over to Thessalonica, and basically the same thing happens. They catch up with you there. They chase you out of town. So they're heading out of town at night. They go to Berea. The same thing happens. And as they're leaving Berea, imagine you're, you're walking along, and like the, the wounds on your back are probably still raw from Philippi. 
You got, you got beaten and imprisoned there. They kicked you out of Thessalonica. They kicked you out of Berea. Wouldn't you be prone to thinking this whole thing was one big failure? Maybe the Lord didn't call us to minister here after all. Maybe I just ate a bad pizza the night before and I had this weird sleepless night and this isn't what the Lord wanted for me. Can you imagine the temptation to think like that? But yet, listen to what Paul writes in verse 1. He says that our visit to you was not a failure. He says that firmly. He tells them about what happened before they got there. And of course, the Thessalonians know what happened while he was there. And he says, our visit was not a failure. Many of you are familiar with the, 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 the account, the story of Jim Elliott and his pilot, Nate Saint, and three others that flew in 1956. They flew in to meet up with a tribal people in Ecuador. And as soon as they landed their plane on the, the riverbank there and engaged with these people, they were all killed. The Wadani tribe murdered them all. Now, they didn't even get to share the gospel. Maybe you would think, wow, that was a failure. But we know it wasn't, right? We know how that story continued. We know that because of what happened, many of those tribal members were led to faith in the Lord and are believers, and it's been passed on for generations now. We know that wasn't a failure. Maybe closer to home. A lady in our church who accepted a call to deacon ministry, enthusiastic to fulfill this role, and just a year and a half in, health challenges are keeping her from being able to do that role, and she's now had to step down. Maybe if that was you, even as you're looking at it, you might think, well, that was a failure. That probably wasn't the right thing to do. But it wasn't. And here's why. Here's why. Because obedience to the call of God is never a failure, regardless of the outcome. Obedience is never a failure. There will always be opposition. There will always be persecution. Jesus promised it. We can't control the outcome of most things, but we can control what we do. And when we prayerfully seek the Lord's will and we obediently follow in faith, believing that God is leading us there, that's never a failure. When has a, a ministry endeavor of yours seemed like a failure? Think back. Something that you felt the Lord led you to do. And, and now you think, wow, that was a big failure. Maybe you were working with some friends who were having marital problems and you counseled them and they went on to get divorced anyway. Or maybe you shared the gospel with a neighbor and they didn't accept it. Does that mean you failed? Or maybe you endeavored to restore a relationship with an estranged son or daughter. And they wanted nothing to do with you. You reached out to them in love and, and they didn't respond. Was it a failure? No. Because again, obedience to the call of God is never a failure. Regardless of the outcome. And that's what we can learn right off the bat from what Paul says here. Our visit to you was not 
a failure. And so he continues then in verse 3, he says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. So in chapter 2, Paul is presenting his motives. First of all, this is where our heart was when we came to you. And this is how we went about it. Now, why is he doing that? I think a lot of Bible teachers apply these verses primarily to church leaders. And it makes sense because obviously Paul was a church leader and this was his approach to leading in ministry. But I really think that's kind of limited. This has a, a much broader application than just that. I believe this applies to every single one of us who call on the name of the Lord. And here's the reason why. These Thessalonians, they weren't leaders in the church yet. They were brand new Christians. And yet Paul's unpacking for them his approach to ministry. And even though they experienced it firsthand, they, they saw his ministry, they were there. Why is he explaining to them what his motives and his methods were when they saw it? Well, for one, he, of course, he wants to encourage them in their faith. He wants them to know that this was, is genuine. But beyond that, what he's doing is he's teaching the Thessalonians, because he wants them to move on from just merely being discipled to being disciplers. He wants to grow them up in their faith. Remember, we said that our commission is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. If, if our disciples aren't making other disciples, then we haven't discipled them. They're not, they're not following the Lord. And so we need to, at some point, prepare those we disciple to become disciplers. Well, when our children were young, Deborah and I were blessed to take part in the parenting class that we now lead. And through that, we learned so much biblical application to parenting. And this completely changed our parenting. It changed our family dynamic it impacted our children's relationship with the Lord in a wonderful way. And while there's no guarantees, I'm just super thankful that all of our kids are walking closely with the Lord today. But now that our kids are older, two of the three, plus our son-in-law, have parenting class themselves. And, our, and the third one was just introduced to it this weekend, this week. And so it's interesting because they're saying... Ah, now I recognize that. Now I see what you were doing. Now I understand the reason you did what you did. See, they're seeing it from the other side, not as a child, but as a parent, not as one being discipled. But what is it like to be a discipler? That's what's happening here with the Apostle Paul. He's saying, this is what we did when we came to you. And I'll bet the Thessalonians are going, oh, I get it now. I see what you were doing. I see your reason for that. And so he's teaching and informing them so that they too can be disciplers. And you know what? 
This is God's intention for every single one of us here who is a believer. That we become disciplers, equipping other people to do the work of ministry. So, let's look at the details of what he's telling them. He says in verse 3, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. In other words, Paul was telling the truth. There was no trickery. There was no deceit. There were no ulterior motives. And I like the way the Apostle Peter made the same point in his second epistle. He said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It wasn't hearsay. It wasn't trickery. It was the truth. We saw it and we're communicating it to you. See, Thessalonica was on the crossroads of those two Roman trade routes. They had all kinds of charlatans coming through town. And there were all kinds of religions. And every one of them had their form of evangelism. They wanted everybody on board with their little thing. you got to worship our statue. Buy this silver from us. There was all kinds of false teaching going on there. Jesus warned about this. He he said there's going to be false teachers. But he also said that when the spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you in all truth. And so, as believers, and especially as disciplers, we need to be lovers of the truth. We need to understand and cling to the truth. Every word that comes out of our mouth should be true. Not deceptive, not trickery. We need to speak the truth. And then in verse 4, he says, um, there were no lies or deception. He says, on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul was not a people pleaser. We know that in any ministry, there is a temptation to be a people pleaser, isn't there? Even as witnessing your faith to your friends and your co-workers, there's a temptation to become a people pleaser, to do or say the things which kind of they want to hear, which garner praise or the approval of people. What's at the heart of that temptation? Why do we feel that we want to be a people pleaser? At the heart of it, I think, is fear. Fear of man. It could be a fear of what other people might think about us or say. A fear of not being accepted by them. A fear of not being successful. And so we feel this pressure to change and make it more palatable, more pleasing to those that we're maybe sharing with. Proverbs 29.25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So we don't need to trust in these other things. We need to trust in the Lord and the truth of his word. You know, another name for, another uh, phrase for fear of man would be peer pressure. We all feel that, right? To come to the pressure to conform into something that they would like. So, 
There's this old fable, you've probably heard it, about an elderly man and a little boy and a donkey, and they're walking along, and as they come through this first village, the, the village people kind of get after the old man and say, you know what, you shouldn't be walking at your age, you should be riding on the donkey. So the old man, wanting to please him, gets up on the donkey, and they continue on their way. Well, they come to the next village and said that the old man was cruel to let the child walk while he enjoyed a ride on the donkey. So the old man, wanting to please the townspeople, got off the donkey and put the little boy up on him. And they continued on. And they come to the next town and the village people said the child was being lazy, making the old man walk. And they suggested that they both ride. So, all right. The man, when he pleases the people, gets up on the donkey and the two of them ride off on the donkey. They come to the fourth town and the people say, that's cruelty, both of you riding on that poor little animal. So the man, huh, so he gets down and they both start walking again. Well, they come to the next village. The last time he was seen, the man was carrying the donkey. <laughs> you can't please, you can't be a people pleaser. You just can't. And Paul makes it really clear. You know what? Jesus wasn't a people pleaser. He said some very firm, hard truth that actually turned people away. Many disciples stopped following him. He didn't, he spoke the truth. He did it in love, but he spoke the truth. He didn't change or water down the message to make it more acceptable. That's kind of what the prosperity gospel is all about, isn't it? I'm going to just change this message so that more people will come, more people will contribute, more people will buy my books. They'll go home feeling better about themselves. But our attitude should be like David who said, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Paul and David, they knew that our identity should be in what the Lord thinks about us. God, what do you think about that? Was that true to your character, to your heart, to your word? That's what we should be more concerned with, not what did people think about it. So it doesn't matter if we lead a church or a business or a family or whatever we do. We need to make decisions to please God. And when we do, it'll always be the right decision. So Paul says, I was not a people pleaser. We didn't do this to please man. And then he says in verse 5, And you know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Well, what is this flattery that Paul's talking about? Flattery is simply this. It's the excessive and insincere praise, especially when it's given to further one's own interest. It's self-serving. You're probably the smartest person I've ever met. And you're successful at everything you do, and people just love you. Even children, they just adore you. Hey, you want to lead this new ministry I'm starting up? That's flattery. It's buttering people up. Excessive and insincere praise. So does that mean it's wrong to compliment somebody? No. There's a difference between encouraging and complimenting and flattering somebody. The difference is in who it's meant to benefit. Compliments are sincere and they're meant to benefit the recipient. Flattery 
has a selfish motivation. It's trying to get something from the other person. And flattery, it's not communication, it's manipulation. It's sinful. And so, Romans, in the book of Romans, in chapter 16, pastors and teachers are warned about the use of flattery to attract more people. And again, that can come from watering down the gospel. Maybe there's little talk of sin or guilt. No talk of hell, just heaven and blessing. We'll just make it more appealing. We'll tell the people what they want to hear. We'll talk about the health and the wealth and the prosperity. People will flock in, but Romans 16, 18 says, For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. We need to stick close to the Word of God. Again, Jesus... He never watered down his teaching. And he wasn't unloving. He spoke the truth, but he did it in love. Well, in a similar way, Paul says, we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. Now, does this mean that when we're sharing our faith with our family or friends, we shouldn't, we don't really need to care about the content or the tone. We can just blast it out there. And let the Lord do with it what he wants. I, I was, I've told you how I was in New York City one time. And walking through Times Square. And there was a man on the corner. With some kind of board around him. And he had a bullhorn. And he was barking out the gospel. Basically what he was saying to all these people crossing the street. Is you're all going to hell. He put it out there. And, and he probably went home at night. And, you know, I was out preaching today. I didn't see anybody coming to that man going, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about his love, his sacrifice. Tell me why I need this Savior. He was just barking out condemnation on people. Well, we're not supposed to be people pleasers, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't care about how we present the gospel to them, how we disciple them. Paul was very thoughtful in how he presented the gospel. He often adjusted his methods to the people he was speaking to. But he never changed the message. He never compromised the message. So this method is important. We've seen his motives, his heart. Let's look at proper methods secondly. And I show this starting in verse 7, but we actually have to back up to the middle of verse 6. Again, the, the verse and chapter breaks are not inspired. They weren't in the original text. And I think they got this one wrong again because the thought changes in the middle of verse 6. So we'll back up to that. Paul writes, As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. Isn't that sweet? Gentleness, I think, in our society today is often overlooked. It's diminished, minimized. Our society values power and assertiveness over gentleness. I saw, we like to watch AFV. It's it's pretty clean. America's Funniest Home Videos. And there was a little girl, she couldn't have been more than six or seven years old, and she was ordering her little brother around like some kind of dictator. And the brother says, 
hey, stop bossing me around. Stop being so bossy. And this little girl puts her hand on her hip and she goes, I'm not bossy. I've got leadership potential. <laughs> like six or seven years old. I've got leadership potential. Who taught her that? That like that kind of bossy dictatorship is a sign of a good leader. This is kind of how our society looks at this. Jesus said in Matthew 20, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, what? They lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, Riverside. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This isn't saying that there shouldn't be any authority. God instituted authority in society, in families, in the church. And we need authority. Without authority, society wouldn't function very smoothly. We need that authority, but we can, be a, we can be authoritative without being authoritarian. Paul never pulled rank on the people he was ministering to. He didn't abuse his authority. Instead, he was gentle as he ministered to these people. He writes in verse 7, When we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. He didn't have a bullhorn. He wasn't barking out condemnation. And then later in verses 11 and 12, he says, For you knew that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. I'm, I'm so blessed when I see my daughter holding one of her little children and how gently she instructs and corrects and how she loves those little boys. It is so beautiful to me. I love it. Even where I might feel like, oh, I think I would be a little more snare. She's just so loving and gentle with them. It's a beautiful picture. A mother gently caring for her children. In fact, it can actually be translated a nursing mother. The idea being one who only gives to her children. And then also a father encouraging, comforting, and urging or charging, exhorting his children. Mothers and fathers are different in their parenting tendencies and roles. And, and a lot of that is by God's design. It's not wrong necessarily. Mothers have this tender, nurturing, comforting way about them. Fathers tend to be more firm and authoritative. When are you going to get a job, son? A <laughs> little different approach. But God, when done right, God uses both of them to train up a child. And if in, in, in absence of either one, it's going to be out of balance. And the same thing is true with new believers that we might be discipling. If we treat them only as a mother or only as a father, it would be out of balance. Both are needed. And yet, both are to be gentle and loving. I've had um, 
people in my office over the years who have either been caught up in or are confessing some really awful sin. And things which have deeply hurt other people, things which have moral and even legal consequences. And after working through these things biblically, one man said, I expected you to come down on me like a ton of bricks, but you didn't. Now, this doesn't mean I turned a blind eye to the sin. In fact, in one case, it had legal implications. I told the gentleman, I have to report this. I have a legal obligation to report this. And you will likely be arrested and you will likely go to prison. But let's talk through the biblical way to respond to this in light of the sin that you have committed. And we worked through that. And you know what? When we were done, that man said to me with tears in his eyes, I've never been loved by anyone like this. See, that's being gentle. And I'm not blowing my own horn. I don't get this always right. I get frustrated with people too. But I'm always reminded of this verse. For a long time, I kept it on my desk. Hebrews 5.2. It says, it's speaking of a high priest. And it says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. Because he himself is subject to weakness. Oh, Lord, I can look at my own heart. I'm subject to weakness. I'm in no position to deal harshly with the sinning brother or sister. But gently. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Paul emphasizes this in his approach in working with the Thessalonians. He was gentle, like a mother, like a father, with these wayward people, bringing them to repentance, leading them to repentance, and then discipling them on toward maturity. He says then in verse 8, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Now, he's speaking about something here that's much more than just a general love for the lost. We're to have a love for the lost. It's what compels us to share the gospel. But this is something much deeper and much more personal. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. And keep in mind, this happened over the course of just three Sabbaths. That's how long he was in Thessalonica with these people. Have you ever experienced this where the love that you have or someone can so quickly develop with someone who shares the same spirit. I felt that in India with those young men that were feeling the call to be a pastor. Like there was this bond. We share the same spirit. And I felt this deep love. I, wanted, I felt like I wanted to do anything I could to help them. That's what happens when we share this common bond, especially if we're somehow, if God uses us in their spiritual rebirth, there's even a greater connection there. And so the Bible talks about a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And Paul speaks of becoming a spiritual father to those whom he led to the Lord. He refers to them as his dear children. There was this immediate bond and connection with them. And here in our text, he writes how they had become so dear to us. 
And so Paul and the others opened up their lives to them. They were vulnerable. They shared their hopes and their joys and their trials and their failures. And they poured deeply into these other believers as they opened up their lives to them. There's risk in that. There's risk of being betrayed, being rejected, being judged. But they opened up their lives. You're familiar with the saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think there's truth in that. Paul showed care for these new believers, but he also shared his knowledge with them. He showed them both how much he cared, and he shared what he knew about the Lord Jesus. And he says in verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Now, mind you, he's doing this while his back is still just raw from a flogging, a severe flogging days before. And he's in Thessalonica, and he said, I don't want to be a burden to you guys. I'm going to just work. I'll work at night. I'll do my tent making so that I can minister to you during the day, and you don't need to support me. I can cover my own costs. Now, in the structure of a church, some are set aside for full-time ministry. And they have the right to be compensated for their work so that they're not burdened with bivocational ministry, two full-time or nearly full-time jobs. I do know pastors who are bivocational. They do their best to work nights so that they can start up a church during the day. It, it, it's really difficult. But 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Paul knew this. He knew that it's right and biblical even for a full-time minister of the gospel to be compensated. Yet despite this, he chose not to be. He said, we didn't want to be a burden to you. We didn't want to place any burden on these new, these new believers. In fact, these new believers were probably facing financial burdens of their own, like the Jews in Jerusalem. They were disassociated from their families when they gave their life to the Lord. Many of them lost their property, their inheritance, their jobs, their source of income. So they were struggling. Paul said, we didn't want to be a burden. And so he worked Wounded as he was, he worked at night so that he could minister to them. Many of you know that my stepfather is a pastor. And uh, while we were away in Asia last month, he celebrated 60 years uh, as an ordained pastor. And he's still, I talked to him this week on Thanksgiving, he still ministers two weeks a month to a church that's about a two-hour drive away. And here's a picture of his ordination service in 1963. Now I'm sharing a bit of my life with you here. <laughs> the man, the second man from the left who has his hand on my stepfather's head is his father, who was also a pastor. And so he would, through the marriage of my mother, he would be a grandfather. And I knew him as a little boy growing up. His name was Albert Holman, uh, but all of his family just knew him as Pop. Pop was a pretty neat guy. But his story goes all the way back. He was first ordained in 1921. 
And his first call to pastoral ministry happened shortly after that. And so in the 1920s and 30s, he pastored a small church in the rural community of St. Francis, Kansas. And many of these people were immigrants. And so they had a worship service in English and in German, two different services. And these immigrants were, many of them were given land by the government, 160 acres apiece to try to make a living off of. And so they plowed the prairie and they planted crops, but this is what led to the Dust Bowl in 1929. And it was the breaking up of so much of the prairie land and not really understanding how to manage the crops and the land. And so these farmers in this little church were hit really hard by this dust bowl. They lost pretty much all their income. And the members of the church said to my grandfather, we're going to have to let you go because we just don't have the money to pay your salary. To which my grandfather said, that's okay. I'll continue on working and ministering here without a salary. And that's what he did for a number of years. The farm, the farmers, the people of the church, if they slaughtered an animal, they would bring in some meat for him. They would bring vegetables in from their gardens so that he had some food to feed himself and his family. He... His heart was a lot like the Apostle Paul, I think, in that he would forego income if needed because gospel ministry to him was even more important than his own well-being. He was trusting that the Lord would meet all of his needs. And in doing this, he set a strong example for others. This is what the Apostle Paul did. And he's telling these Thessalonians, we work night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. See, maybe they didn't even know that. Maybe they just thought he went home at night and turned on the news, relaxed. No, he went to his second job. He says in verse 10, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, remember from chapter 1, that Paul and his companions were conscious of everything they did in the midst of these new believers, even unbelievers. He wrote, you know how we lived among you for your sake. He didn't want to do anything that would trip them up, that would be a hindrance to the gospel, that would be a burden to them. Rather, he wanted to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And so now by writing this to the Thessalonians, he's not tooting his own horn. He's instructing them. He's telling them, these were our motives. This was our method of ministry. And he's equipping them so that they can minister to others with the same heart and the same methods. So this instruction applies to us too. We shouldn't do anything that could become a stumbling block to other believers, young believers. We don't want to trip them up. We don't want to unnecessarily burden them. So then in verses 11 and 12, we mostly covered this, but it says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And then look at how verse 12 ends. Urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his own glory. That word is present tense. It speaks of a continual action of calling. 
We talked a little bit about calling last week. I mean, a lot of times I think we view calling as like maybe something that happened one time when we were called unto salvation, like one and done. But this is an ongoing call of God. It's not just to salvation. He's calling us and he continues to call us to higher levels of faithfulness and obedience and responsibility and maturity. We're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, God is still calling you. So we, we see here Paul's motives and his methods. And I just want to look finally at the powerful means by which the gospel works. Verse 13 says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So here again, we see Paul's thankfulness. Again, we had Thanksgiving Thursday. We celebrated that. We saw last week that in the Bible, thankfulness is directed almost exclusively to God. I haven't heard from anybody yet that found an instance of somebody thanking someone else in the Bible. Still keep looking. Not saying it's wrong. But thankfulness in the Bible is directed exclusively, in fact, I'll say exclusively, toward God. And so here, Paul is thankful for their response to the gospel. But notice the role of the Word of God. It's mentioned twice. They responded to the Word of God and they were saved. And now this same Word, it says, is continuing to work in those who believe. So just a final thing I want to touch on is how exactly does this gospel work? in a person's life. What does it do? How does it work? Because we're called to share the gospel. Do I like have to say certain things to like release the power of God? How does this whole dynamic work when I share my faith in my life with others? I'm just going to cover this quickly and I'm not going to jump into the last two verses. But it begins when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. John 16.8, Jesus said, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And then last time in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul wrote, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. When you speak the truth of God's word to an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit comes along with that and brings conviction. Conviction is an awareness, a consciousness of our sin. You could say he convicts or he convinces us of our sin. If you don't start there, well, they don't need a savior unless they realize the weight of their sin that they've offended a holy God and the penalty for that. The wages of sin is death. So the first work of the Holy Spirit, in fact, the first interaction that most unbelievers have with the Holy Spirit is one of conviction. And it's people under conviction aren't fun to be around. But the Lord is convicting them, making them conscious of the fact that they've offended a holy God. They're feeling the weight of their sin. And one of the primary instruments that God uses is the Word of God. Remember Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and active it penetrates, divides, even judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It brings conviction. And so then next, the Spirit of God illuminates. 
so that they can see and understand the beauty of the gospel. And again, the Spirit does this through the Word of God and through the people of God. He uses us, He uses you in this process. Romans 10.17, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. You should never fail to put Scripture into your speech to an unbeliever as you're witnessing to them. And Romans 10 also says, how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And now can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Those who are you, me, we're to bring this good news. There is no account of an angel from heaven broadcasting the gospel. It might reveal to something to mankind, but then God sends them to a believer to share the word, the news. So now at this point, I believe a person can still resist and reject the Lord. They can turn to all different means to try to hide or cover this feeling of guilt that they have. And people do. Or they can surrender and confess their sin and accept, receive God's forgiveness and his new life, which is what we saw with the Thessalonians. When we do that, the Holy Spirit regenerates us, gives us new spiritual life, makes us a new person on the inside. He comes in, having dealt with the issue of sin, the Holy Spirit can now live within a, a, a sinner like us because we've been made new on the inside. We can be united to, to God. So He indwells us. He seals us. He's our guarantee of our future resurrection and, and uh, our presence in heaven with the Lord. And then he begins this work of sanctifying us, cleaning us up, changing us. He works again through the word of God and through other believers to change us. So we're less like that wretch that we were, and in many ways still are, more like Jesus Christ. Every time... We read the Word of God as a believer. Every time the Word of God is taught, the Spirit is actively at work in us, unpacking, applying, illuminating, teaching, instructing, and hopefully changing us. This is what Paul's referring to in verse 13 when he writes that of, of the Word of God which is at work in you who believe. This is what's going on. And then look at the result in verse 14. For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 1, verse 6, he wrote, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. This is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, changing us as believers. It starts the moment we believe. And it continues on until the last breath we breathe. Spirit of God working and sanctifying us. This is the powerful means by which the gospel works. It works through the power of the Holy Spirit. In conjunction with the word of God. And the people of God who bring that message. So these final two verses just speak of the persecution that they endured from their own people. The other, the other Thessalonians attacked them just like the Jews in Jerusalem attacked the Jewish believers there. 
And we're not going to have time to go into that this morning. But they had a strengthened faith in spite of all of these trials, these attacks, because the Spirit of God was in them. And they were surrendering to the will of God and to His Spirit. So, let's just kind of wrap this up by recapping what I think God is saying to each of us at Riverside Community Church this morning. I believe He's telling us obedience to the call of God is never a failure, regardless of the outcome. If you were obedient, if you prayerfully sought the Lord's direction and you stepped out in faith and obedience to God, it's never a failure. You did the right thing, regardless of how it turned out. Our motives and our methods in ministry matter. If they didn't, Paul wouldn't have bothered with it. He wouldn't have told them his approach to ministry. And so we saw several things here that he brought out. We should speak only the truth, no deceit or trickery. Straight up, the Word of God. We must resist the temptation to be a people pleaser. This doesn't mean we're abrasive or callous or careless. We need to be thoughtful. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to be gentle with these people who are going astray. We should never use flattery. It's manipulation. Again, deal gently with those who are going astray. Think about the people that you're ministering to in your life, whether new believers, growing believers, unbelievers. They should always be gentle, like a mother, like a father. Must avoid being a burden or a stumbling block. Lord, search my heart. Is something I'm doing in my workplace, in my school, in my church, is that a stumbling block? Am I being an obstacle to someone else receiving the gospel? Remove the stumbling block, God. Maybe that would mean removing us. Maybe it would mean changing us. But we need to be introspective in that regard. And then finally, God's Spirit works powerfully through God's Word and through God's people. He wants every single one of us to move on from just being discipled to being disciplers. And that's the power of the Spirit and the Word which is at work within each one of us. God wants to use every single one of us in His gospel ministry, in His kingdom building program. So, let's pray to our great God together. Heavenly Father, we are so totally dependent on you. I just struck this morning by the meditation of Advent, Emmanuel, God with us, God with me, the wretch that I am. You came down, God, and you had a desire to dwell with us. And that desire was so great that you gave yourself you died in our place. You took that penalty, God, so that you could take up residence within us, so that we could be forgiven, that we could receive your righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness. God, that we could be your child in a relationship. And then, God, that we could go on to be workers in your kingdom. God, that we'd have a purpose in life, a purpose that's so much bigger than ourselves and our own success. God, a purpose that is serving you faithfully. Lord, give us the, the will, the desire to do that. Forgive us when we fail, Lord. Strengthen us for this task. 
We can't do it without you, but God, you're not going to do it without us. You want to use us, every one of us. So God, motivate us and move us in, in that regard. By your spirit and your word that's at work within us, God, change us this morning. Transform the way we think about ministry by just working your powerful word in our hearts, Lord. We want to we wanna be faithful. God, we want to please you. We want to hear your whisper, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, help us to do that. Strengthen us. And, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.